feet on a moonless night. You're on a dark, lonely road. The shadows seem to reach for you. The sudden rustle of leaves makes you jump. Your heart beats faster and faster. You assume it's your imagination. Unless you're on the road to Resurrection Cemetery, just southwest of Chicago. In January of 1979, a cab driver found himself on that road on just such a night. He was about to have an extraordinary experience, which a number of Chicago cabbies claimed to have had over the years. Say, miss, I'm, I'm lost and can't find my way back to town. Look, if, uh, if you point me out the right direction, I'll, I'll give you a lift wherever you want to go free of charge, okay? Why don't you hop in? Just over a mile ahead was Resurrection Cemetery, one of the largest in the Midwest, the final resting place of more than 150,000 souls. Stop here. Stop here. The cabbie parked across from the cemetery's front gate. The mysterious passenger had vanished without so much as a door slam. The unwitting cab driver had just met Chicago's most famous ghost, Resurrection Mary. I think that of all the ghost stories worth believing in, Resurrection Mary is the one with the best documentation. The witnesses that I found are remarkably level-headed, and they're primarily blue-collar, middle-class types who have steady jobs and who uh, have no other major claims to psychic encounters in their life. According to Richard Crowe, the earliest account of Resurrection Mary came from a man named Jerry Palis, who died in 1992. In 1986, when he was 72, Jerry described his encounter in a videotaped interview. Experience because uh, when I met her at the dance hall, I watched that uh, at the entrance there. The year was 1939. On most nights, throngs of young people filled Chicago's dance halls. One of the regulars was Jerry Palis, who considered himself something of a ladies' man. Hey, you know that girl over there? I'm going to ask her to dance. Jerry described the woman as being blonde, about five foot seven. Her hair was about shoulder length, and she had curls along either side of her head. She was wearing an old-fashioned, uh, or I should say, a very fancy type uh, uh, party dress of the period, old-fashioned to today's terms. It's Mary, isn't it? That's a pretty name. Jerry danced every night with a quiet, captivating young woman. I couldn't help noticing somebody as pretty as you. He learned little about her, except that her name was Mary, and she lived on the south side of town. Where? South Damon. Hands. They're like ice. Must mean you have a warm heart. Can I give you a ride home? Please. As we walked along to, to the street, uh, she says, well, you might as well take me down to Archer Road. 
And I said, what for? I said, you live uh, here and here where, where you told me. And she says, no, she said, I want to go out to Archer Road. Boy, it sure is quiet out here. What you want to come out here for? Stop. What? Stop the car. This wasn't at all what Jerry had expected. I need to get out of here, please. Mary had asked him to stop in front of Resurrection Cemetery. Just please, just wait right here. vanished right before his eyes. Jerry admitted he was perplexed, but certainly willing to forgive one unexplained disappearance. The very next day, he went out to Damon Avenue, where Mary had said she lived. Jerry found the house with little trouble, but before he could even knock, the front door swung open. Yes, can I help you? Excuse me, I don't mean to disturb you, but I'm looking for a young woman named Mary. I was told she lives here. You must be mistaken. There's no one here by that name. Wait, that's the woman I'm looking for in that picture. No, that's not possible. That girl is my daughter, and she has been dead for five years. I danced with that girl last night. It's then Jerry said that he understood why the woman he was dancing with that night was ice cold to the touch. He had worked in a funeral home for a while, and it was the touch of a corpse. The revelation naturally cooled Jerry's romantic interest in the mysterious beauty. Years later, Richard Crow learned the ghost was believed to be the restless spirit of a young woman named Mary Brigoni. Mary had been killed in a traffic accident one Saturday night in 1934, a month before her 21st birthday. Around Chicago, folks liked to believe Mary had just left the dance hall when she died. She was laid to rest in Resurrection Cemetery, they say in her favorite gown. Over the years, the bewitching spirit has been seen time and time again. At dance clubs, in taxis, and simply strolling outside the cemetery, looking, as the legend goes, for someone to take her home. I really didn't think there was any ghost. You hear these stories. With this workout method, I'm stronger than I've ever felt before. I bend, but I don't break. People, a strength that sets you free. channel the latest in sports the world's greatest athletes the best celebrity guests and here's the best part about it it's free that's how we roll on the rich eisen show now you can binge your favorite martha stewart lifestyle shows free on the roku channel learn classic cooking techniques and live your very best life what can i say i'm a bit of a multitasker Welcome to Paris, where you star in your very own romantic comedy. 
ready for a game. old ghost tales but um it's never happened to me but now i um must say i think i'm changing my mind in 1980 claire rudnicki her husband mark and two friends were driving on archer avenue along the front of resurrection cemetery i was just looking out the window as we were going down the streets and on the right hand side of the road there was a girl walking look ahead look it's a girl she was bright, very bright, like illuminating. She was just walking very slow. I remember thinking, oh my God, it's Resurrection Mary. And I can feel my stomach starting to turn. Let's go back. No. I was very frightened. I have to admit, it did scare me. No, I don't want to go back. Let's go back. On the other hand, Claire's husband, Mark, was ready to swing around for another look. No one could have pulled a prank like that because she was so bright and illuminated and there was no light source from which that light could have come. She was just a bright object, a glowing figure on the side of the road. And uh, when we were coming up behind her, I looked at her from behind on the side and when I had driven past her, and all the time I was looking at her face and there was like a black void. There was really nothing there. There was no facial features. We all went past it, turned around and came back, and by the time we had gotten back to where we had originally seen her, it had gone, vanished. She was all in white, and uh, her hair and the dress were, were flowing back. It was like a, a stream backwards, you know, away from her. And I just saw this profile of a young woman. So what time are you leaving tomorrow? In October of 1989, Janet Kolal and a friend set out for an evening drive. After about an hour, they found themselves at Resurrection Cemetery. There was no impact. There was no, no bump to say that, you know, I had hit something. But I know she ran out. Um, the young woman ran out in front of my car, and I hit her. Just calm down. Everything's going to be okay. And yet, nothing. Let's, let's go back to your apartment. No impact, no sound, nothing. Okay. My dad had told me the story about Resurrection Mary before because he had read it in the newspaper back in 1939, but I never thought that I would be party to it, uh, that I would see it myself, or that I would be with a friend who would have seen her. You can pick apart individual ghost stories, 
But when you come up with a story like Resurrection Mary, where we have dozens of reports spanning decades, I think you've got to go a long way to trying to undermine all that massive documentation. I like to drive past the cemetery to see if I can see her again. <laughs> I never want to see her again. <laughs> it's so fresh in my mind still. It still scares me. I didn't believe in ghosts until I saw her. And the, the way I know it was really a ghost is you just know. Does the ghost of Mary Bragovi still haunt Chicago late at night? Or is Resurrection Mary simply a time-honored urban myth? In any case, should you find yourself driving in the city late one night, and you spot a wistful young woman in a flowing gown, you might think twice about offering her a ride. one of our most touching and poignant. It concerns a woman searching for two men, two complete strangers she never even talked to. But during one fateful encounter in 1978, they saved her life. She has been searching for them ever since, simply to say thank you. Hi, Colleen. Welcome to our class. Thank you so much. For Colleen Frangioni was paralyzed from the waist down more than 15 years ago in a horrible automobile accident. Since then, she has spoken to thousands of high school students, urging them to wear seatbelts. Buckle up. I didn't. It's my slogan. Every time Colleen speaks in a classroom, she relives the night of September 23rd, 1978. The hit of second car just twisted me beyond the normal range and that twist was so forceful that it broke two lower vertebrae and severed my spinal cord oh, mercy. And, and and i'm glad i don't remember it in the midst of the chaos two bystanders pulled colleen from the burning wreckage however both men disappeared before anyone could get their names colleen has never stopped looking for them when Colleen's appeal aired, luck was with her. Both men called her phone center. Their names are Ray Myers and Mike Kane. Though they both live in the Providence, Rhode Island area, they had seen each other only once in the aftermath of Colleen's accident. Colleen was thrilled to learn that her rescuers had been found after more than 15 years. What Unsolved Mysteries did was the tip lady called me, told me, you know, that she had heard from one of them and gave me his number because, of course, they didn't want to give out my number. So um, I called him, I said who I was, and, and it was just so nice. In fact, we talked so long that night, my husband fell asleep. We were in bed, and my husband fell sound asleep while him and I were just talking about, um, you know, he was telling me things that I had no idea. On December 27th, 1993, Colleen finally was able to meet her heroes in person. Ray Myers was the first to arrive. Oh, God, I can't believe I can really touch you. I really didn't think that you existed. Thank you. Oh, I was in shock. I couldn't believe it was me. You know, I mean, I knew it was me, but it's like 
thing. It's incredible. That's how I feel about this whole thing. I think it's incredible. Half an hour later, it was Mike Kane's turn. Hi. Hi. Mike? Oh, gosh, how nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Oh, gosh. You know, I try to imagine what you look like, and, and I can't do that uh, when I don't know a person. <laughs> no surprise. You know, why 15 years later? Oh, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Why? Why? You know, why? It's so important. But when she said she wanted to thank the people, and after I spoke to her on the phone, it was like, this lady is really sincere, you know? And that's what she wanted. She wanted to thank us. It's your name. It's, right. I feel the whole circle, it, it's all completed. All the pieces of the puzzle are all put together now. And, and it's a real peaceful feeling inside. But that's, to me, and, and in fact, how many times have I said in the last two weeks, how many people get to meet their guardian angels? And this is how I feel. Next, a young woman disappears in the wake of a near-fatal motorcycle accident. of us are resigned to keeping in touch with friends and family by telephone. The calls are usually a source of comfort and pleasure. But for one California mother, a phone call from her 28-year-old daughter began a nightmare which is yet to end. As a rule, we do not air stories about grown children who choose to separate from their family and friends. But the case of Selena Eden is special. When she graduated from high school in 1980, Selena was... I'm Karina Gultubar. I was diagnosed with AFib. The first inkling that something was wrong was I started to notice that I couldn't uh, do things without losing my breath. I couldn't make it to the airport. Every like 20 or 30 yards, I had to sit down and get my breath. Every physical exertion seemed to exhaust me. And finally, I went to the hospital where I was diagnosed with AFib. When I first noticed symptoms, which kept coming and going, I should have gone to the doctor and told them what was happening. Instead, I tried to let it pass. If you experience irregular heartbeat, heart racing, chest pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, or lightheadedness, you should talk to your doctor. AFib increases the risk of stroke about five times. I want my experience to help others understand the symptoms of atrial fibrillation. When it comes to your health, this is no time to wait. With this workout method, I'm stronger than I've ever felt before. I bend, but I don't break. P-Ball, a strength that sets you free. Welcome to the Rich Eisen Show, right here on the Roku channel. The latest in sports, the world's greatest athletes, the best celebrity guests. And here's the best part about it, it's free. That's how we roll on the Rich Eisen Show. Now you can binge your favorite Martha Stewart lifestyle shows free on the Roku channel. Learn classic cooking techniques and live your very best life. What can I say? I'm a bit of a multitasker. Okay, okay, ready? It's kind of like, wow, there's literally everything here. I see it! Everything a parent could ask for. 
She was president of the student body and of the senior class. But Selena had always marched to her own drummer. She dropped out of college to join the Air Force. Then after a stint, Selena became a journeyman construction worker in San Francisco. She joined the Teamsters and bought herself a motorcycle. She was humorous. She was also quite daring. She was the kind of child, like, say, it was things that you wanted to do that, you know, in life, this was the child that kind of did it, was that daring. On November 29th, 1989, Selena was on her way home from the Union Hall in downtown San Francisco when tragedy struck. She was in a coma for six weeks, and uh, she had some brain damage. She had a long way to go. Selena was admitted to the hospital as a Jane Doe. Her ID papers had disappeared in the aftermath of the accident, and seven days passed before her mother and brother were tracked down in San Diego. Selena, baby, look who's here. Dion, he came with me today. Hi, Dion. Hi, baby. How you feel? Okay. Baby, I'm good to you? She had lost a lot of her memory. Sorry. So it really kind of took away her personality. Mama, don't leave me, okay? Don't leave me. She appeared to be like a child again. Like she didn't know too much anymore. You know, she just, you know, like, like a child. Selena's left eye had been permanently damaged. She suffered painful headaches. Her left thigh was crushed, and a severe head injury caused fluid to build up around her brain. Nevertheless, Selena dove into an exhausting regimen of physical therapy. Selena was the type of patient they had to slow up. She wanted to do everything in a hurry. She wanted to walk before she could walk. It was just that she was, like, rushing everything. She challenged herself to the max, and it was like a lot of things that she just couldn't do. And I guess she just uh, wasn't ready to accept the fact that she wasn't well yet. Come on. Two months after the accident, Selena's brother brought her home to San Diego. Selena planned to live with her mother and niece and continue physical therapy on an outpatient basis. Welcome home, baby. Thank you, Mama. How are you feeling? Okay, Mama. Feel good, baby. Doing good. You know, when she was living with me, um, she started having more like confused episodes. Being the mother, I could see it, and um, medical people, you know, really couldn't see it the way I could. There was a lot of changes. I, I, I feel that sometimes she had her days that she could be quite mean. And then that was the days I would notice that uh, she was having a lot of headaches. Uh-huh. So we'll do that. Bye. Soon the headaches gave way to general confusion. Physically, Selena was getting better, but mentally, she was worse. Are you all right, baby? Mama, who was that I was talking to? I don't know who you were talking to. Did you forget? Yes. 
Things like that would upset her. That's when I noticed her frustration more and more. And she felt like more and more she wanted to be on her own. But the more she pushed it, the more confused she was becoming. With her recovery stalled, Selena decided to return to San Francisco in May of 1990. She hoped that the familiar surroundings would help her. Lori. Yeah. Who's that girl? What girl? What is that by the house today? You mean Liz? Yeah, Liz. Who is she? She's your friend, Selena. She's very happy to be in San Francisco nice. and to be around her friends. But, oh. you know, she didn't appear healthy enough to be on her own. Are you okay? She was very unaware of a lot of things. I think she definitely needed somebody to be with her, you know, to help her. Despite her erratic behavior, Selena had been in the habit of calling her mother regularly. Finally, in October of 1990, nearly one year after the accident, Clarissa Eaton received a phone call she would never forget. Hello? Hello, Mama? Selena. Mama, I'm going away for a while. I met someone who promised to be kind to me. Oh, she was evasive Selena, with me. And that wasn't like her. She know. would tell me everything. You need to come home. I said, Selena, what you need to do, you need to come back home. And she said, well, don't worry if you don't hear from me in a month or two. Selena, you should come back home. And then she said, I'll be calling you soon and hung up. And that's the last I've heard from Selena. The last time I heard anything of Selena, she was leaving for somewhere in the Midwest, and I can't remember where, with some woman who she had just met, and I got the impression that she probably didn't know much more about the woman than I did, and I didn't even know the person. I had no idea who it was, and uh, I couldn't get a last name from her, uh, and it was just kind of a haphazard plan. There was no plan. It's like, I'm going. Excuse me. Selena's family hired a private investigator to search for her. Even after she told her mother she was leaving town, Selena was sighted in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. Some people said they saw her around here. When was she here? A few weeks back. The investigator followed up on all the leads, but it turned out to be a fruitless search. You do see her. Would you give me a call? Yeah, sure. Thanks. You know, I just hope she's out there probably, you know, just living her life. And for what reason she didn't call us, maybe it's just because she forgot us. Maybe she just don't remember. You know, hopefully it's one of those stories. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we can find her. You know. I want to see my daughter again. That's my baby. I love her like I love all my children. And I want her back with us. I want her to try to call or someone call for her if she's unable to call and let us know where she is and how she is. On New Year's Eve of 1991, a year after Selena had disappeared, she left a garbled message on her friend Lori Gallagher's answering machine. It was the last time any of Selena's friends or family heard her voice. Since then, a lawsuit has been filed in Selena's name regarding the accident. However, the action cannot proceed until Selena is found. Selena Marie Eden is 31 years old and stands 5 feet 6 inches tall. At the time of her disappearance, she weighed 125 pounds. She
she has a pronounced stiffness in her left leg, which causes her to limp. In a moment, a daring $7 million heist funds a bold act of international terrorism. It's hard to imagine what $7 million in cash would look like. But 1983, one man managed to steal that astounding sum. Single-handedly, he wrestled 50 heavy bags of currency out of a vault, loaded them into a getaway car, and vanished. The daring robbery still stands as one of the greatest heists in United States history. The key figure in the holdup was a brazen 25-year-old armored car guard named Victor Manuel Herrera. At the time of the robbery, Herrera was a trusted employee at the West Hartford, Connecticut office of the Wells Fargo Express Company. What's up, Vic? September 12, 1983. Irena's arrival at work that day was unremarkable, except for the one special request he made of his supervisor. Excuse me, Jim. I need to ask a big favor. Is there any way I can park my car over here at Bay 5? I would really appreciate it. What's wrong with your car? It's not mine. It's a friend of mine's. I hate to see something happen to it. You know how it is outside. You know, I'm really not supposed to be doing this. I'll let you do it this one time. Just don't take advantage of me, Victor. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, Victor. All right. <clears throat> the vehicle that Victor was driving that day was a 1973 Buick LeSabre, which was a full-size big car capable of, of carrying a, a large load, whatever that may be. That day... Helena and his partner made all their scheduled rounds, collecting more than $3 million in currency from local banks and businesses. The Wells Fargo vaults already held more than $4 million. Tim, I'm going to check in the guns. Okay. Thanks. By 9 p.m., Helena, his partner, and the supervisor were alone in the armored car terminal with more than $7 million in cash. Authorities never determined what the syringe contained, but it did not put the guards to sleep. Helena began to move the seven million dollars, bag by bag. It took the better part of an hour and a half to load his car with about 1,000 pounds of cash, roughly half a ton in marked and unmarked bills.
After the car was loaded, we believe that he sent a signal to someone on the outside that uh, was helping him. He honked the horn and opened the bay door to the terminal. Um, it's believed that at that point, someone else came into the terminal and drove his car out of the terminal with the money inside the car. The guards uh, at this point, I'm sure, were very upset and, and even more so when they, when they heard a shotgun uh, being loaded, which is a very distinctive sound. However, Helena left the building without harming the guards. They soon worked themselves free and called the police. 18 hours later, Herena's car was found abandoned about eight miles from the Wells Fargo terminal. Victor Herena had vanished, along with every last cent of the stolen money. Investigators soon discovered that the daring theft was far more than a one-man operation. It had been masterminded by a Puerto Rican terrorist group that counted Victor Herena among its members. The group called themselves Los Macheteros, literally the machete wielders, and they were fighting for nothing less than the independence of Puerto Rico. The island of Puerto Rico was ceded to the United States by Spain in 1898. Eventually, some Puerto Rican groups began to agitate for a complete break with the United States. At times, they turned to violence. In 1950, two Puerto Rican terrorists attempted to assassinate then-President Harry Truman. The failed attack left one White House guard dead and two injured. More than 30 years later, Los Macheteros attempted to strike another blow. Flush with millions from the robbery, the group purchased a surface-to-air missile, apparently from a black market arms dealer. On October 30, 1983, they launched it at the FBI headquarters in San Juan, Puerto Rico. However, little damage was done, and some of Herena's co-conspirators were quickly arrested. Victor Herena eluded capture, and he was soon elevated to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Victor Manuel Herena is now 35 years old. He has brown hair, striking green eyes, and when last seen weighed around 165 pounds. He stands five feet, six inches tall. Authorities believe Herena has been hiding out in Cuba, but may soon return to the United States. Victor Herena should be considered armed and dangerous. When we return, the poignant story of a father and daughter torn apart or in Vietnam. May 1968. Soon Van Nguyen was among hundreds of South Vietnamese officers dispatched to England Air Force Base in Louisiana for jet pilot training. Soon was scheduled to remain in the United States for seven months. He felt lonely and displaced until a local family, the Gautiers, took him under their wing. They had six children. Their oldest son was stationed in Vietnam. Mrs. Gautier was thinking about her son being a foreigner in Vietnam in the same situation as my friends and I were here in America. Because of that, she helped us on the weekends. 
so that we feel comfortable, just like we were in our own country. One of the Gautier's daughters, Gwendolyn, was the same age as Sue. In no time at all, the two of them had fallen in love. But inevitably, the war intervened. In December of 1968, Soon completed his training. He and Gwendolyn had one final night together before they said goodbye. Why are you crying? I don't want you to go. We can leave this place. We can go to Canada or something. Gwen. Why not? I can't. Because of my honor as an officer in the Air Force, I could not desert my countrymen. And so I said to Gwen, I have to go back. But I hope that someday we would see each other again. Soon often received letters from Gwendolyn. One letter carried news that would change his life forever. Gwen was pregnant with his child. After barely escaping from death on a very dangerous mission, I came back and there was good news. Coming back from a tense mission and hearing the good news, I was so happy at that moment. On August 28, 1969, Gwen Gauthier gave birth to a healthy baby girl and named her Kimberly Karen. Gwen continued. I'm Kareem Abdul Jabbar. I was diagnosed with AFib. The first inkling that something was wrong was I started to notice that I couldn't uh, do things without losing my breath. I couldn't make it to the airport. Every like 20 or 30 yards, I had to sit down and get my breath. Every physical exertion seemed to exhaust me. And finally, I went to the hospital where I was diagnosed with AFib. When I first noticed symptoms, which kept coming and going, I should have gone to the doctor and told them what was happening. Instead, I tried to let it pass. If you experience irregular heartbeat, heart racing, chest pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, or lightheadedness, you should talk to your doctor. AFib increases the risk of stroke about five times. I want my experience to help others understand the symptoms of atrial fibrillation. When it comes to your health, this is no time to wait. here on the Roku channel, latest in sports, the world's greatest athletes, the best celebrity guests, and here's the best part about it, it's free. That's how we roll on the Rich Eisen Show. 
now you can binge your favorite Martha Stewart lifestyle shows free on the Roku channel. Learn classic cooking techniques and live your very best life. What can I say? I'm a bit of a multitasker. to write faithfully soon could do nothing except write back five long years passed years in which soon yearned to see his little girl he felt frustrated and helpless caught in the middle of a war more than 9,000 miles away from Kimberly but fate stepped in in June of 1974 soon was sent back to England Air Force Base for further training Gwen's mother was now divorced and living in a mobile home. Soon went to visit her, not knowing whether Gwen and Kimberly lived there. Not knowing whether after five years, Mrs. Gautier would be friend or foe. I, I don't believe it. S Sue? Hello, Mrs. Gautier. Oh, oh. The my God. She kept saying, oh my God, I cannot believe it. From what I could understand, she had never imagined that she would see me again, or that Kim would ever see me at all. Just wait till you see her. She is the most beautiful little girl in America. <laughs> Where are they? Houston. Uh, you did know that Gwendolyn got married. No, when? Oh, about a year ago. Mrs. Gautier became Soon's closest ally. She contacted Gwen in Houston and arranged a meeting. Hello, Sue. Hello, Gwen. And I looked at her and knew right away that this was my child. Emotions were running high. I really wanted to hug my child. This child I had waited so long to see. But the situation simply did not allow it. It's good to see you. Mrs. Gautier convinced Gwen to let Kimberly come back to Louisiana for the duration of Soon's assignment. For nearly a month, Kimberly lived with her grandmother and soon spent every free moment with his daughter. Soon had no idea that Mrs. Gautier had told Kimberly he was her father. What'd you say? Daddy? Why'd you call me that? Because you are. How do you know that? Because you are. Then Kim said, because her hair was black, her eyes were black, and her skin was dark skin. And she was especially proud to point out that she had a flat nose, <laughs> an Asian nose. Finally, the day soon had dreaded arrived. I thought she'd come with me tomorrow to airport. Gwen came to take Kimberly back to Houston. Soon knew the war was not going well, that he might never be able to return to his daughter. 
Can't she stay one more day? No, she can't. This isn't a fairy tale, so you're going back to Vietnam tomorrow. We got to go. The time had been so short, and now we were parting. I didn't know if I would ever see my daughter again. I couldn't control myself. I broke down and cried. And that's the truth. Soon shipped out to South Vietnam in July of 1974. In less than a year, Saigon fell to the communist government of North Vietnam. Along with thousands of other South Vietnamese, Soon was incarcerated in a re-education camp where he languished for nearly 10 years. In 1984, Soon was released from the camp. Two years later, he married. 